0: following is a teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how you can join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org. Well, good morning, everybody. So glad that you are with us, whether you're here in the room, some of you that are up there in the balcony, or those of you who are joining us online, so glad that you are a part of our worship today. I'm glad to be back with you guys. We uh, had an amazing vacation together as a family. We just had some good bonding time, made some memories. The uh, Pacific Northwest is gorgeous. We flew into Seattle and then slowly made our way down the coast, finished the trip in San Francisco. It was Fantastic. But I'm really, really glad to be back with you guys this morning. We're finishing up our sermon series called The Name. And so if you have your Bible, grab it and let's go to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus 34. We are looking at this passage that is God's self-disclosure, that, that God has Moses up on a mountain and has his presence passed by Moses and describes himself. Reveals himself, makes his character known. And we started this whole series by saying what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing that you can think. Because what you think about when you think about God determines your destiny. It determines who you become. It it determines how you live. It determines what you love. It, It shapes your life and your future. What you think about when you think about God determines your destiny. I mentioned to you the first week that I've been greatly helped in this series by a book called God Has a Name by John Mark Comer. And here's the way that John Mark kind of captures this idea. He says, if you think about God as a homophobic, racist, and mad at the world, this distorted vision of reality will shape you into a religious bigot who is, wait for it, homophobic, racist, and mad at the world. If you think that of God as a left-coast-educated, LGBTQ affirming progressive, that will shape you into the stereotype of the wealthy bohemian with the we will not tolerate intolerance bumper sticker on the back of your hybrid. If you think about God as the cosmic version of a life coach there to maximize your life, that will shape you into a self-helpy yuppie even if you dress it up and call it following Jesus. So clearly, what we think about God matters. Who God is has profound implications for who we are. Here's the problem. We usually end up with a God who looks an awful lot like us. As it's been noted down through the generations, God created human beings in his image, and we turned around and returned the favor. That so oftentimes we make God in our image. what we think about when we think about God winds up looking an awful lot like us. And there's a very real sense in which the entirety of the Christian life is a lifetime spent having our tiny, tepid, distorted view of who God is corrected over the course of a lifetime. And this, my friends, is precisely why we need the Bible. We are a Bible church. And we are... Primarily, first and foremost, a Bible church because we are a Jesus church. We take Jesus very, very seriously. Jesus took the Bible very, very seriously. So we take the Bible very, very seriously. We desperately need the Bible to correct our tiny, tepid, distorted view of who God is. That means we have to pay attention even to the parts of the Bible that make us feel uncomfortable. And I would suggest, especially the parts of the Bible that make us feel uncomfortable. Because the Bible is supposed to make us feel uncomfortable. If if I'm not preaching in ways that sometimes make you feel uncomfortable, I'm not really preaching the Bible. Because the Bible is supposed to make us feel uncomfortable precisely because it's supposed to change us. And none of us changes without feeling uncomfortable. Babies enjoy being changed. The rest of us, not so much, right? The Bible is supposed to make us feel uncomfortable because it's meant to change us. And so this morning we come to a part of this passage that at least on first pass makes us feel uncomfortable. But I believe that as we really explore what's going on in these words and these phrases, what we will find is something that is profoundly good news. Something that is beautiful, compelling, and life-changing. So let's dive into the passage together. Exodus chapter 34. Again, Moses has been brought up onto a mountainside and God's presence has passed before him. And God discloses himself, describes to Moses who he is. And these words that we've been unpacking over the course of these weeks, beginning in verse six, God says, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of their parents to the third and fourth generation. Now that's the part (laughs) that makes us feel uncomfortable. What's going on with God and grandkids? Well, we'll get there. But before we get there, we need to sort of uh, peel apart the layers of what God says about himself here. And the first thing that we see that he says is that he maintains love to thousands. And the word that's translated here as love is that word hesed that that Craig taught us about last week. If you'd missed last week's sermon, you've got to go get the podcast or go download the video, watch it on YouTube. It was a powerful word about the love that God has for us, this loyal steadfast love of God for you and for me. A powerful message. And, and, and so here, that God just reiterates that reality, maintaining chesed, maintaining loyal love to thousands. But the careful reader, the astute reader is, is immediately left to ask a question. Thousands of what exactly? And, and it may seem on first pass that the answer to that question would be people. And yet if you stop to think about that, If that's the answer, that's not exactly great news, is it? Um, There are 7.8 billion people in the world right now. Experts suggest that over the course of human history, there have been about 117 billion people that have ever lived. If God's saying, I love a few thousand of them, that's not great news. That would be God being stingy with his love. And yet I believe that the, this passage is designed to do precisely the opposite, to, to disclose to us the reality of an extravagant love, a love that is so extravagant that it defies our imagination. That scholars look at this passage and suggest that there's a parallelism that's going on here. The parallel between the first numbers at the beginning and the last numbers at the end, between thousand and third and third and fourth. Therefore, the idea is in both places, it's generations maintaining loyal love to a thousand generations. This is what's made explicitly clear in Deuteronomy chapter seven, verse nine. In Deuteronomy seven nine, we read, "Know therefore that Yahweh your God is God; He is the faithful God, keeping His covenant of Hesed, His covenant of love, to a thousand generations." Of those who love him and keep his commandments. Maintaining love to a thousand generations. Now, does that mean that when we get to a thousand and one overdone, no more, it's run out? No, the whole idea of saying he maintains his loyal love to a thousand generations is to say that it is inexhaustible. That as we sometimes sing around here, that, that it never fails, that it never gives up, that it never runs out. The love of God is extravagant in a way that defies our imagination. And that's good news. Because I think some of us, some of us are prone to think that God feels about us the way we feel about ourselves. And I don't know about anybody else, but I can sometimes have a pretty harsh inner critic. Anybody with me on this? That voice inside that that just um, expresses this sense of self-condemnation, even self-contempt, disappointment, shame. And sometimes we confuse those voices with the voice of God. I got to tell you, I was not at my best this last week. Um, We got back from vacation and I just all week long just felt, was very aware that I'm just not at my best. I wasn't at my best at work. I wasn't at my best in relationships. I wasn't at my best in my spiritual life. And I'm not sure what it was. Maybe I just needed a little more introvert time than I got while I was on vacation. I don't know what was going on, but I was very conscious of the fact that I'm just not at my best. And I needed the reminder that's here in this passage. I needed the reminder that God has an extravagant love for me even when I'm not at my best. And in fact, he has an extravagant love for me even when I'm at my worst. In your very worst moments, God's love never fails, never gives up, never walks out. And it maybe there are some of you this morning who just need to be reminded of his love, to, to be reminded, to hear him say to you, to hear him say, you cannot out sin my grace. To hear him say, you cannot outfail my love. To hear him say, you cannot fall too hard, wander too far, hide too long, or fail too often to make me stop loving you. Those inner voices that you hear of shame and disappointment, of self-contempt, those are not my voice. My voice, he says, is the tender voice that says you are loved, that you are valuable, that you are cherished, That you are safe, that you are known, that you are held. You are held with an extravagant love that defies your imagination. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. Not only when you're not at your best, but when you are at your worst. But then there's a contrast in the passage, right? Maintaining love to thousands, but, but then he goes on and he says, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. God is going to deal with sin. I, uh, I spent 25 years of my life in and around graduate level theological education. Um. 10 years in graduate school, getting a master's degree, a PhD, and then 15 years teaching at a graduate level theological education as a seminary professor. 25 years in and around graduate level theological education. You know, one of the most profound truths that I've come to learn in 25 years. Right? Here, here you go. Tw- 25 years brought down to one sentence. You ready? Got your pens? <laughs> here it is. Sin is a big deal to God. Sin is a big deal to God. And if we need proof of that, we need not look any further than the cross of Christ to know sin is a big deal to God. And here's why that truth is so profound. Sometimes sin is no big deal to me. And I wonder if there's anybody else in the room for whom that's true. This passage, as God makes his character known to us, reminds us that sin is a big deal to God. And he will deal with sin. But the, the way this passage speaks of God dealing with sin is, is the part that makes us really uncomfortable, right? This whole thing about the grandkids, right? He says, he says I, I will not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. What on earth? Are you serious? Like in some sense, my sin could affect and be, bring about punishment for my grandkids, Or I might be experiencing punishment for sin for an ancestor that I've never even met. Is that that what it's saying here? And we begin to squirm just a little bit, don't we? And yet I think that we have to look at this and and, and say, I I don't think that it can mean what it seems to mean on the surface. We've got to dig a little bit deeper. Part of the reason for that is that we have clear teaching in other places in the Bible that that each of us is responsible for our own sin. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16. Parents are not to be put to death for the sin of their children, nor children put to death for the sin of their parents. Each will die for their own sin. This is one of multiple places throughout the Bible that indicates that, that very clearly, we are each responsible for our own sin. Now, one of the things that the Bible does that we especially as a good individualist Americans need to be challenged and reminded of sometimes is, is the Bible does point to the, to the ways in which we are all deeply interconnected. And yet the Bible makes it very clear that we are each responsible for our own sin. So what's going on with this passage? Well, a lot of it rides on the significance of this little word that the NIV translators translate as punish. Um, It's the Hebrew word pakad. And one uh, Old Testament scholar, Ephraim Spizer, said this about this little word. He said, there's probably no other Hebrew verb that has caused translators as much trouble as pecat. What to do with this word is, is sometimes a little baffling to those who are trying to translate this passage and the way it shows up in other places of the Bible. It can mean punish. Yet the root of this word means things like to attend to. To look after, to care for, to pay attention to. The way this gets translated in the New English Translation, the Net Bible, that many of my colleagues at Dallas Seminary worked on, is this way. They say, he by no means leaves the guilty unpunished, responding to the transgression of the fathers and dealing with children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. That God pays attention to that God deals with our sin, even as it's passed on from generation to generation. So so what is this passing on from generation to generation? What's, What's going on with that? Well, I think we can see, understand something of what this passage is pointing to just by paying attention to life, to looking even at our own life stories. And the fact of the matter is, is that it can be passed. Sin can be passed on from generation to generation in terms of its consequences and its patterns. That sometimes sins' consequences have generational impact. You can imagine this scenario, nightmare scenario. If I was unfaithful to my wife, if I engaged in an affair. This would be devastating on so many levels. Devastating for my wife. Devastating for my children. Devastating for this church. Devastating for me, for my career. My, my ministry would be over. And I might spend the rest of my life trying to make that right. And to, to regain trust of people I love. And yet, the consequences would last, would linger, and would ripple. And could even be passed along to not only my children, but their children and their children after them. Sin's consequences have a ripple effect. And some of us just need to be reminded of that this morning to put a healthy fear in us. Sin is a big deal. But it's not only sin's consequences, but it can also be sin's patterns. That sin's patterns can be passed on generationally. The fact is we all tend to become like our parents, like it or not, right? We, we spend a lot of our lives thinking, I will never become my parents. And then what do we all do? We become our parents students. I'm sorry to tell you, but it just happens, right? We have expressions like a chip off the old block or the apple doesn't fall far from the tree that are just ways of expressing this truth that we sometimes wind up becoming like our parents, despite our best intentions, I'll never forget a a number of years ago now, um, an experience that I had with my sister. Um... Some of you that know a little bit about my story know that my dad died a little over 20 years ago while I was a seminary student. And a few years after we lost my dad, I had this experience where I had the opportunity to do some training at the seminary and and it was recorded on a DVD. And Kim and I went and visited my mom and my sister and we somehow put that DVD on. We're watching this DVD of me doing this training and my sister starts to freak out. And she's got this big grin on her face. I'm like, What's, what's, what's happening? And she just turns and leaves the room without saying anything. I'm like, what's going on? And then she comes back in the room. She's like, y'all come with me. Like, where are we going? She takes us into the other room and she's got another TV set up. And, and so my DVD is playing in the living room. And then in the bedroom, there's an old VHS player. And she's got a VHS tape of my dad doing some training in his professional career. And it was crazy because it was like looking at me on the screen. I mean, my voice sounded like his voice. My mannerisms, my cadence sounded like his cadence. My my hand gestures looked like his hand gestures. If there's things that you appreciate about me as a communicator, I got it from my dad. If there's things that sort of annoy you about me as a communicator, (laughs) I got it from my dad. There's a lot of great ways that I'm a lot like my dad. My dad was a good man. I'm a leader like my dad. I'm a hard worker like my dad. I'm a communicator like my dad. There's also some not so great ways that I'm like my dad. I can be angry like my dad, I can be harsh like my dad. I can be distant like my dad. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not blaming my dad. I am a fully grown adult responsible for my own sin. But sometimes patterns get perpetuated generation to generation. What God's saying here is, I will deal with sin. Sin is a big deal and I'm going to deal with it. But here's the thing, don't miss the point. The point is in the parallel. The point is in the parallel between thousands of generations and third and fourth generation. Do you see the discrepancy, the difference between the two? The incredible contrast between God's extravagant love that lasts a thousand generations and God's commitment to deal with sin. The the way that third and fourth generation is functioning here is is like an idiom that says simply, as long as it takes. We could paraphrase this to say, my love lasts forever, but I will deal with sin for as long as it takes. Sin is a big deal to God. He will deal with it in your life and in your family for as long as it takes. Friends, we are loved with an extravagant kind of love. A love that never gives up, never runs out, never fails. An extravagant love that defies our imagination. And the voice of that love tells us You are seen, you are known, you are cherished, you are held. But sin is a big deal to God. Even though sometimes it's not that big a deal to us. God wants to deal with your sin. No matter what it takes. So I have a couple of questions for you to leave you with this morning. Questions that I'd love for you to spend some time reflecting on right here and right now, but also questions that maybe you need to spend some time with God this week, maybe with your journal, maybe with a trusted friend, maybe with a therapist. The first question is this. What patterns are you repeating? What patterns might you be repeating that you're not even aware of? I had an incredible opportunity this week to sit with a friend and he was just really honest about ways in which he's done some exploration of his family of origin. And he's just dedicated himself and asking God to help him to not perpetuate those patterns anymore. And I, I, I was so thankful for the opportunity just to be able to look him in the eye and say, you're doing good. But it challenged me. It challenged me as I sat with this passage to say, Barry, what patterns might you be repeating without even paying attention, without even realizing it? What patterns are you repeating? The second question is, what voice are you listening to? Are you mistaking the harsh voice of your inner critic for the harsh voice of God? Instead of recognizing That his voice is always the tender voice that says, I love you. I love you with an extravagant love that defies your imagination. Let's pray together. In this moment of quiet, I just invite you to reflect on those questions What patterns am I repeating? What voice am I listening to? Father, we thank you this morning for this beautiful truth that we are loved with an extravagant love that defies our ability even to imagine, a, a love that lasts forever. Thank you. God, we pray that we would listen to, we would hear that inner voice of love in our lives. Rather than listening to that inner critic, that voice of shame, of disappointment, of of self-contempt, that we would embrace your embrace of us to know deep down in our bones that we are loved. Not only when we're not at our best, but even when we are at our worst. And God, we thank you this morning for the reminder that sin is a big deal to you. We pray that you would help it to become more and more of a big deal to us. That we would recognize the patterns that we are perpetuating and maybe even passing on. And that we would repent. That we would bring those things to you. That we would name them before you. And we would say, God, undo this pattern in me. That we would pursue the work that that is necessary to make that happen. To pursue trusted friends that we can be honest about with this. Maybe even to find a professional who can walk with us through it. That we would dedicate ourselves to breaking those patterns and not passing them on. God, help us to respond to you this morning as is fitting for each and every one of us. And we pray this in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how to join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org.